0: Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. Thank you for having so many reasons to praise you. The the list of reasons that we ought to praise you and give you thanks is is too vast uh, to recount. And, And what we've done this morning, Father, for your glory is to to sing of your kindness and your faithfulness, to sing of the mercy that you have bestowed upon us, to, to seek your wisdom and, and direction in our lives, and, and now as we continue to worship you, we want to worship you based upon what you have recorded for us in your word. Minister your grace now. We pray that we would be humble before you, that your spirit would teach us, and that you would Uh, Guide us through our worship in the word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In Marvel Studios' Thor Ragnarok, we are introduced to an endearing character named Korg. Korg is a guy made out of rock. And he's a happy guy. Um, Here's a sample of the type of endearing personality that comes through Korg. When telling Thor about who he is, he said, I tried to start a revolution, but I didn't print enough pamphlets, so hardly anyone turned up, except my mom and, and her boyfriend, who I hate. So, this is just one of the many endearing elements of Korg. In their conversation, Thor asks Korg, has anyone fought the Grand Master's Champion? And Korg said, Doug has. Doug? Oh, that's right. Everyone who fights the Grand Master's Champion perishes. And he says, wait, you're, you're not planning to fight him, are you? And Thor, with his typical bravado, says, yes, I am. I'm going to fight him, win, and get out of this place. Korg says that's exactly what Doug said. (laughs) See you later, new Doug. And the story unfolds a little bit, and it's time for the duel. And Thor is in this stadium, ready to fight the Grandmaster's champion, who turns out to be the Incredible Hulk. So they start fighting, and at first, the Hulk is winning, and then the, the the uh, tide turns and Thor is about to beat the Hulk in this duel and the Grandmaster can't have this. And so he uses this little device that was already implanted on Thor and disables him. So he's laying there kind of motionless on the ground and then the Hulk goes up for the, the most epic elbow drop in history. He like shoots through the, the top of the stadium, comes back down. Well, partway through this fight, I think Korg started to, to get a sense, that, well, we might actually have a chance here. And as soon as, as Thor is laying there perilously on the ground and Hulk goes up for his epic elbow drop, Korg makes this statement. Another day, another dug. Some elements of this life are so consistent that we can wonder what role do we actually have, what role do we actually play in this universe? Elements of nature press on, with or without us. Elements of our experience can seem wearying. We can never get enough to satiate our desires. Elements of history keep moving forward. Someday, they will all forget us. What will have been your lasting impact? What will have been your legacy? This is the first main subject that the preacher of Ecclesiastes broaches as he exposits the vanities of life. He's trying to give us a concept that we will see, I think, very clearly of our smallness in the scheme of things. Remember how we tried to define vanity already. It has to do with something of a temporary nature. The temporary nature of life has to do with how hard it is to get a handle on life. Before we lay out an outline for our study this morning, I want for us to just kind of pick apart a little bit on these first few verses of this book to get a grasp on how the book begins. So let's start with the first 3 verses. We'll read them and then and then work through them and then we'll start with an outline. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities says the preacher, vanity of vanities all or the whole thing is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? First, we're introduced to the preacher. We mentioned this already. That comes from a Hebrew word, koaleth. It means collector or assembler or preacher. Gatherer. Someone who is gathering information and then dispensing it. This is what the preacher does. He is the son of David, he is king in Jerusalem. As you look through the letter or this, this book, you'll see that he is wealthy. And you'll see that he is wise. And so we're going to just go come forth with it with the very traditional interpretation of who the, the penman or the, the main speaker is here. And his name is Solomon. Solomon. Contemporary or uh, modern... Scholars beg to differ. It really is not an issue. Solomon isn't named here, as he does name himself in the book of Proverbs, and as he does in Song of Solomon, so we don't have to contend much. The long and the short of it is, when you come to Ecclesiastes 12.11, the the person responsible for collecting all of these writings and, and laying them down says that all of this comes from one shepherd and it is not the preacher. It is not the gatherer or collector that one shepherd is God Himself. And so that really is the ultimate essence that we need to know that this is divine, divine inspired writing. This is sacred text. What we see here as we see the unfolding of this mindset is from the mind of the Lord through the mind of of man. He's trying to help us to understand something. He introduces us to this word vanity in verse 2, which again we have described as maybe transitoriness. That's uh, Walt Kaiser's definition. Transitoriness. It's transient. How, how do you hold on to this? This it, the, the Hebrew term is hevel. You can say hevel, but it's really pronounced hevel, hevel. That word hevel or vanity is used in 30 verses... Out of 222 verses in this book, that is one out of 7.4 verses. That's a lot. Yes? It is. It's used 38 times overall, and so there's a heavy emphasis on this concept of vanity. If we're not careful, we'll think that vanity outweighs other things, and it really doesn't, though this is the subject matter that is being unfolded. the, The Hebrew term tov is also used quite a bit. It means good or better. I've learned it is better. I've learned that it is good. He says this regularly. That is used in 40 of 222 verses. In other words, out of every 5.5 verses, you're going to hear tov, tov, good, good, better. He's letting us know that there's something more than this vanity that we see under the sun. We'll talk about that in a moment. Overall, the word tov is used 51 times in this book, outweighing the concept of vanity. Now, vanity is the subject. He gives us that clarity in chapter 1 and verse 2, and he comes back to it in chapter 12 and verse 8. So that is the subject. He is is unveiling, expositing the vanities of life, but it's not left at... Transitoryness and I can't handle it. It says, if you only look at life through the the lens of this world and and the perspective under the sun, you will find yourself feeling very vain. But there is another way to look at it. There is another way to look at it. Verse 3 He says, What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? What does man gain? Gain, in this book, is a mixed bag. You can accumulate stuff, right? Everyone accumulates stuff. Let's say you have to move to a new house tomorrow. Have you accumulated anything? Yeah. You've accumulated a lot. <laughs> so yes, we gather things, but it's a mixed bag. And, and Solomon deals with that mixed bag in various ways through this this book. I'll share a few of them. We don't have time to turn to them, but we'll, we'll look at one concept. But three bullet points on the screens from to my left and right. Sometimes you leave it this gain, this accumulation of stuff. Sometimes you leave it to someone who does not appreciate the effort involved. You'll see that in chapter two and verse twenty-one. Sometimes you lose it and have nothing to leave behind. This also is a vain gain. You'll see that in chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. But this is universally true about earthly gain. These things never result in lasting satisfaction. That is the truthfulness of gain under the sun. And so look at that in chapter 2 for just a moment. Chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. Solomon writes, So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, That was uh, that w- and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So Michael Eaton defines this gain, or this concept, as life pays no dividend. Life pays no dividend. He, He makes this statement about vanity that I want to share with you. He says, Vanity characterizes all human activity, joy and frustration alike, life, youth, and death, the destinies of the wise and foolish, diligent and idle. In verse 3, he says, What does man gain by all the toil, there's a noun, at which he toils, there's a verb, under the sun? He's presenting a weariness here. He's talking about the, the efforts and the efforting. Here's the toil, all the efforts. And the efforting is, uh, and I keep doing it. There's a, a, a constant searching, a constant working. He's talking about both the, the result, toil, and the, the working, the toiling. Toil produces no lasting gain, no stockpile of goods, no lasting joy. And what we'll notice is that Solomon will contrast this with gift. Gift. A gift is something we enjoy. Now think of it this way. It's been a long week at work. You've worked diligently. You receive your paycheck, and you say, you know what, dear? We're going to go out to eat tonight. And you go, and you spend some of your money that you earned. That was nice. It was fine. You you were enjoying the fruits of your toil. I want you to compare that with someone gave you a gift card. So someone gave you a, a sizable gift card, and you can go out, you, your wife, and your kids, and enjoy dinner, and it didn't cost you anything. Which of those two feels better? It's the gift. Feels better. Why? Because I'm not wondering, you know, I worked really hard and now I'm just going to flush this down the toilet, essentially. So what happens? By my money, there it goes. But when you have a gift, you just enjoy it and you move on and you kind of revel in it for a little while and then you move on to something else. But... Solomon does this. He wants to compare the toil and the vanity of our toil and the the vanity of the results over against the gift that we receive and viewing life in the latter instead of the former. And he introduces us here to this phrase in verse 3, under the sun. Under the sun. This is from the standpoint of earth. It's not considering the sovereign rulership of God not considering the sovereign rulership of God under the sun. Here we are. We wake up, we go to bed. 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 And one of these times, we're not going to go to bed. One of these times, it's in a casket. If under the sun is all you have, at some point in your life, you'll start to wonder, what is this all about? I better get all I can, can all I get, and sit on the lid. i am got to save it all up because otherwise, what what will be my legacy? Now we want to move from there through verses 5 through 11. And as we approach it, we're going to approach it twice. First, We will look, listen, and logic through life from a simply secular standpoint. And then we will consider these same arguments from beyond the sun. First of all, we want to notice in verse 4. I said verses 5 through 11. I meant verses 4 through 11. In verse 4, people come and go. People come and go. Look what it says in verse 4. A generation comes... And a generation goes, but the earth remains forever. He returns to the subject a little later in verse 11. He says, there is no remembrance of former things or people, nor will there be any remembrance of later things or people, yet to be among those who come after. So he returns to that subject of people coming and going, people coming and going, people coming and going. It happens over and over and over. You know it. You know, if you ever have done a, a, a family tree, you know that people came and people went. But it doesn't take that much of a scholar to figure that out because you go to a funeral once a year, maybe twice a year, maybe more, maybe less, but you go to funerals. You know people come and people go. You know you celebrate a baby shower and then the birth of a baby and then the, and then the birthdays of the babies and then pretty soon, at some point, there'll be a remembrance of that was baby to that was human. This is a fact. Solomon is very much about letting us know that we will all have an end. He says, however, that the earth remains. The earth remains. A generation comes and a generation goes, but the earth remains forever. Michael Eaton gives us this thought here for this. There is no conceivable end to the problem of earthly futility. Though generations of people come and go, the earth is consistent. It outlasts us from a secular perspective. Now let's look at nature. As we look at nature, it starts to help us again to see this when you're, when you're thinking of it in terms of vanity and you're thinking of it only on this side of the sun, we can see some of the, the vanity of nature. So nature follows a constant monotonous course. Nature follows a constant monotonous course. Listen to verses five through seven. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind and on its circuits, The wind returns. All the streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. (coughs) To the place where the streams flow, there they flow. Again, flow, flow, flow. Rise, set, rise, set, rise, set, rise, set, rise, set, rise. Blow, 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 and blow. Stream, stream, stream. And you feel the weariness here. He's already introduced us to weariness in verse 3. Toil, toil. Or toil, toils. Toils, toiling. Right? We've got this concept already of the weariness of life. And now he's comparing the weariness of life that we experience to the weariness of creation. The sun follows the same course every day. It rises on the east and it sets on the west. You can hear the The movement through the verbs here in verse 5. The sun rises. The sun goes down and hastens to the place. It rises. So he's using these very colorful words. and, And the word hastens could be translated, and I think should be translated, returns panting. Returns panting. The sun rises and the sun sets and the sun returns where it was, panting, ah, 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 before it rises again. Solomon is giving us this idea of the monotony and breathlessness of this daily task. And while the sun isn't actually running, and it certainly is not short of breath, we, on the other hand, can grow weary, very weary of these pursuits that yield no gain. And so there was one commentator that I read that quoted some some lyrics. And I thought it was quite appropriate to the point, so I'll share them with you. So you run and you run to catch up with the sun, but it's sinking, racing around to come up behind you again. The sun is the same in a relative way, but you're older, shorter of breath, and one day closer to death. The sun. It just keeps doing its job. But what is it accomplishing? Solomon says. What's it accomplishing? What's the product? And then he says the same thing about the winds in verse 6. The wind blows to the south, and it goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind. And on its circuit, the wind returns. And so now he uses the winds to talk about the northern and southern. I think he's just completing the compass, right? East, west, north, south—he's just completing this, the compass, and 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 it's just there's there's no there's no no great results he's telling us. And then verse seven, he turns to another snapshot of nature's effort in the streams. All the streams run to the sea, and the sea is not full to the place where the str- streams flow. There they flow. Again, no matter how much the stream streams in another pool of water, its job isn't done. It's never full. So stream, stream some more. Stream more, stream. You're not done yet. You haven't filled it yet. He's pointing to nature to to, to give us this idea of the difficulty to figure out what is going on. And then he moves on from nature to experience. As we look at verse 8, we'll recognize this. Our senses are only satiated while being stimulated. Our senses are only satisfied while they are being stimulated. So you know the senses. Sight, sound, smell, touch, taste. He only uses two of them. He only uses two of them, so we'll try to stick to that and then maybe pontificate a little beyond. Our inner man craves being stimulated. And so in verse 8, he says, All things, all things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. Solomon speaks this way. Uh, Try to think of this. Once you've seen a sunrise or a sunset... Are you all set? Or do you want to see it again? Do you want to see it from a different location? Maybe with a different person? Your your eyes are not satisfied. How about your ears? You hear the most glorious song, the perfect song. You hear it and your, your heart is radiating and, and it's, it's, it's beaming and you're excited so you buy the CD or you, you download the, the, the file or you, you watch it again and again on YouTube. But do you listen to only that one song forever? Or do you want to hear something else? I think you can get the same glimpse with learning as well. Have you noticed this? I have. The more you learn, the more you realize you don't know, it's enough to drive me absolutely crazy. I feel no smarter today than when I was 16. In fact, I'm quite certain I feel much, much, much dumber than I ever felt before. It's, it's frustrating, isn't it? Your mind is not satisfied with your learning. Your eyes are not satisfied with what you've seen. Your ears are not satisfied with what you've heard. Our senses tell us there's there's more. There's more. There's more to life. I'm not done yet. And then he tells us that history teaches us that we are not significant. History teaches us that we are not significant. Verses 9-11. through What has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has already been, or it has been already in ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things, things yet to be among those who come after. Nothing new, nothing lasting, no remembrance. Nothing new, nothing lasting, no remembrance. Nothing new, huh? Huh. What about the iPhone? What about the iPhone? (coughs) iPhone is new. Well, before it was the Blackberry, before it was the cell phone, The landline, the telegraph, and before that, no way. (gasps) you kidding me? People actually talked face to face. Nothing new. What about the computer? Before it was microfiche, books, papyrus, tablets, and carvings in caves. Not new. It's different. It's it's like a massage of what we've already seen. No remembrance. Hmm. You ready for this one? What color were your great, great, great grandmother's eyes? You might know. What was her favorite song? What was her best recipe? Dial it back further. What about your great, great, great times seven grandmother's most cherished possession? What was it? Name it. You remember? I don't know. Why do they put plaques on statues? Because no one's going to remember who that dude or that woman was unless someone puts up a, a plaque on it. A little, little sign. Okay, this was so-and-so. They lived from such-and-such and such-and-such. Here's what they accomplished. Oh, now I know. But if they didn't put it on there, someone looked at that thing you're like, well, that's interesting. Pfft, move on. No remembrance. Disney's Pixar Film Studio produced an animated film entitled Coco. While there are a few storylines in it, one of the storylines revolved around the importance of remembering those who preceded us. In this story, those who were not remembered disappeared from the spirit world. This is not an uncommon theme. You hear people say it all the time. Oh, they live on in your memory. They live on in your heart. They live on. I can see them in your eyes. I can see them in your smile. I see them in this. I see them in that. There's always some way to try to grasp onto something, but Solomon says, listen, there's a generation coming. They're not going to remember you. You can do everything you want to. You can try really hard for the people to remember you. They're not. Going to remember you. The sun rises and the sun sets and it runs around again. It's panting out of breath to do the same thing. The winds blow north, south, north. The streams flow, 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 and they flow some more. You see, but you're not satisfied. You hear, but you're not satisfied. You think, but you're not satisfied. You speak, but you're not satisfied. There's nothing new, there's nothing lasting, and there's no remembrance. This is from the standpoint of under the sun. This is from the perspective of living on earth without the wonder of knowing about the sovereign Good ruler of this universe. What happens, ladies and gentlemen, when we move beyond the sun and we see that there is, in fact, a good and a sovereign ruler? All of these same images take on an entirely different tone. When When a person understands the glory and majesty of God and then they view the sun, they sound like the psalmist. Take a look, please, at Psalm 19. It's all about a change in our perspective. When we look beyond the sun and we see that there is a good, a sovereign ruler and a creator, the same images can take on much different and much more significant meaning. In Psalm 19, verse 1, the Bible says this, "...the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them, God, God, He has set a tabernacle for the Son." Listen to how this majestic viewing saint of God views the sun. He says, the sun comes out like a bridegroom leaves his chamber and like a strong man runs its race, its course with joy. Its rising is from the ends of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them and there is nothing hidden from its heat. It has a completely different perspective. When we see that there is a God and that He is divine, that He is glorious, that He is sovereign, and a sovereign ruler, when we see the things God has made, we say, "God, you are awesome. The sun doesn 't rise, and out of breath it rises like a strong man to run its race, like those Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 1, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. In these things they have been made. In the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. I want you to think we, the sun takes on a different perspective. Now, when Jesus talked about the winds, he didn't talk about them fruitlessly, he actually compared them to someone. Listen to what he says in John chapter three, verses six through eight, "That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit." You're not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes." So it is with everyone who was born of the Spirit. And so he uses the winds and he talks about the workings of the Spirit. The the things of nature take on a different scheme when we see that there is a sovereign ruler in the universe. When Jesus talks about water, he he gives an entirely different expression than Solomon here in this uh, discussion on vanity. And Jesus said in John chapter 4, verses 13 and 14, Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And so it's not just flowing, 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 accomplishing nothing. It's flowing, 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 and it's a welling up stream. He also said this in John chapter 7, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. He's talking about these same concepts, and yet he has an entirely different perspective on them. Uh, Take a look over at Psalm 102 for a moment. Remember he said, a generation comes and a generation goes, but the earth remains forever. Do you remember that? Well, when we start to understand things from beyond the sun, we have a different perspective than that. It's not as though heaven and earth last forever and men are temporary. When we start to look beyond the sun, we start to recognize that the the heavens and the earths are temporary, and man lives forever. What an entirely different perspective that happens when we understand that there is, in fact, a sovereign ruler. There is a beyond the sun perspective. Listen to what it says in Psalm 102, beginning in verse 24. Oh, my God, I say, take me not away in the midst of my days, you whose years endure throughout all generations. Of old you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. What does it say? They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. And so he's comparing the eternal nature of God over against the temporary nature of the things that we see, the under the sun perspective. Take a look now at 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter 3, while you're turning there, I want to share with you how the author of Hebrews quotes Psalm 102 in the first chapter of the book of Hebrews he says and you lord laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning and the heavens are the work of your hands they will perish but you remain they will all wear out like a garment like a robe you will roll them up like a garment they will be changed but you are the same and your years will have no end and then in second peter chapter 3 Peter tells us about the, the end that is to take place in this material universe. It says, the Lord, in verse 9, 2 Peter 3, in verse 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then, the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. So all these things are, are thus to be dissolved. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But, but, according to His promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. A new heaven and a new earth is contrasted with, is anything new? Is anything new? Not under the sun, but beyond the sun? Is anything new beyond the sun? Yes, yes. Beyond the sun, God plans to make all things new. And you know what? Under the sun, in time and space, He is already preparing this. Every time, every time a person sees the wickedness of their sin and God's judgment against their sin and sees that sin as bondage and as a weight crushing down and turns from their sin and turns to the glorious Savior Jesus Christ who lived, was crucified, buried, and risen for our sin, when a person turns from their sin and turns to Christ, God says, I have made all things new. All things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And so God is in the process of making things new, even under the sun. And one day, listen carefully, one day, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, your eyes will see Him and they will be satisfied and one day your ears will hear him and they will be satisfied and one day your curious mind will be made like his you will know him as you are known by him your mind will be satisfied Those who have trusted Jesus Christ as their only means of eternal salvation. We have been united together with Christ. We read it already in our responsive reading. In verse 3 of that passage, it's in the front cover of your bulletin, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And then in verse 4, when Christ Who is your life appears. You shall also appear with him in glory. Those that have trusted Christ as their only means of eternal salvation are united together with Christ. And so we we start to think as as Solomon concludes that introductory paragraph. Is there any remembrance? Will there be a remembrance of you when the next generation comes? What is all that about? What is your legacy? What is your legacy? Friends, when you are united together with the triune God, his legacy is your legacy. And it becomes the only legacy you really care about. The legacy of our God is an eternal legacy. Our legacy is not unique from him. Our legacy does not add to his. Our legacy is completely tied to his. This is why I love the words from this recent song. I mean, I, I don't want to leave a legacy. I don't care if they remember me. Only Jesus. And I, I've only got one life to live. And I'll let every second point to him. Only Jesus. Friend, what's your legacy? What's your legacy? What are you clinging on to? if you're clinging on to you your reputation and the things you experience and the things you accumulate you will come to the point where you recognize it's all vanity vanity and as the old expression is vexation of spirit <coughs> instead instead i beg you to look beyond the sun look beyond the sun Recognize that God as sovereign ruler lovingly sent His Son to bear your sin debt, to die in your place, to provide for you if you were to trust in Christ, eternal life, and a legacy that will never, ever fade. What is your legacy? Or better stated, who? Who is your legacy? Let's pray. Father, you're good. And as we look at this book that you have divinely inspired, we want to view life more appropriately. We get tied up in temporary things. We get tied up with... The affairs of this life that that lead us to feeling a whole and sometimes sorrowful, dissatisfied. But this dissatisfaction is solved when we look to you, when we look to the perfect solution you've given to us. And you have instilled within us, when we are submitted to you, a Joyful purpose. Not only when we see you forever, but even here in these days that we have in this world. Father, give us this passion. Give us this joy in knowing that you are an all-satisfying God. And that you've done what we needed to have a life that is filled with with joy and abundance as we find our joy in you. We ask, Father, that you'd help us to be far more concerned about the eternal legacy that you have already established than our own measly legacy that will fade probably shortly. Use these thoughts for your glory, for the enriching of your church, and for a challenge to those who are living just under the sun. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.